Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, host of Why Do Pets Matter? I'm so glad you're here. And today I'm here with my really good friend, Raj Reddy. He's a professor at Lewis and Clark, the foremost animal law institution, law institution in the country, if not in the world. I think probably the world, but I might be biased. It's a phenomenal program. It has an LLM in animal law and really leads the way and has a phenomenal conference every year. It might be virtual this year because we're in the middle of COVID, but it has a phenomenal um, conference every year. So Raj, thank you so much for coming. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say to our question. Yeah, thanks so much, Deborah, for having me. It's a joy to be on your program. Uh, well, we always start our um, interviews with why do pets matter? So Raj, why do pets matter to you? You know, pets are just part of our families. Um, I remember growing up um, in a small town in Texas and there was this ditch uh, behind our house that my sister and I would sometimes play in. And I remember, I must have been six or seven, there was this black dog in the ditch and I was really excited and I was running to tell my sister about it. And then I realized that the dog was chasing after me. And by the time I got back to my house, the dog had jumped on me and was licking me and was playing with me. And my sister came out and was very jealous. And, you know, from that moment on, I mean, literally, you know, leaped into my life. Um, this dog, um, whom our neighbor actually named Cheryl for us, um, became, you know, an integral part of our home. And, you know, at that time, um, Cheryl lived in the backyard, but, you know, over the course of, you know, my, have had, my having pets, um, you know, my cats and dogs have moved from, you know, the doghouse to inside of the house to the couch and now sleep in my bed with me. And so, you know, when I think of home, it's impossible not to think of the pets who make it home. You know, it's so true. And I think now during this period we've been experiencing during COVID, so many people who have pets really appreciate them so much more. And those who didn't have pets likely got one from a shelter and now understand that feeling you've had since you were young. Oh, yes, absolutely. And you know, the experiences that our pets have over the course of the day, I think we're starting to appreciate more and more sort of being cooped up in some of these some of these houses for, you know, hours on end. And I think it offers us a sort of unique opportunity to better appreciate what some of our, our cats and dogs are experiencing, you know, at home. So they're, you know, oftentimes experiencing, you know, COVID. So um, it's been um, very important for me to, to be able to, to create some uh, more connection with my, with my cat here. 
You know, um, cats are so wonderful. They they don't get as much airtime, I think, as dogs. I actually am a new grand kitty grandmother. Uh, my son has a cat, the first cat ever in our lives, and I love it. But cats definitely don't get as much airtime. And I think it's really important, the piece you brought up about knowing what your dogs and cats are experiencing because, you know, you're away. And now you're home and you see uh, there are some memes that come out that say, God almighty, please don't walk me again. Um, because everybody in the house wants to walk the dog because that's the only way they can get out of the house. <laughs> um, but also there's a lot of worry and I'm sure you thought of this as well. What's the life of the pet going to be like when we return to work? Yeah, it's a question that's, you know, for lack of a better word, has has dogged me these past these past few uh, weeks, especially with, you know, the rise in some of these adoptions and some of these dogs and cats going getting really used to having, you know, their new owners around all of the time. And what is that transition going to be like if there is a transition back into the workplace? Um, you know, I've had some veterinary friends who talk about some of the anxieties and some of the medication that these that these animals are on, separation anxiety and the like. And so um, something that would be really good for all of us to think about is how to sort of mediate um, that transition um, for, for our pets. Yeah, absolutely. Building in some time now to get them used to, especially if they're shelter pets. But I think, quite frankly, my dogs and your cat, who've lived with you for several years before COVID, I, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of are used to us being home now too. And I don't think the shelter pets have a corner on the market of, oh my God, I've never lived without you. Um, Our pets lived without us, but now they've lived with us. And I think they might have a little bit of an adjustment period as well when all of us start traveling again, even if we do work more from our home than um, from an office now, it's going to be different for them. And and I know a number of shelters are really worried about a massive drop-off, mm-hmm. but there might be a better way, and maybe you've thought of it as well, a better way to assist people who adopted shelter pets um, to keep their pets. There might be some training that people could do now before we do the whole open up. Have you thought about that? I've thought about it in a big way. You know, I've I've been really lucky to work at institutions, so Lewis and Clark Law School, but I also, you know, served as a clerk at uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and both of those organizations um, have had very, um, very kind sort of uh, pet um, at the workplace um, rules. And so as long as your pet, you know, isn't abandoned in your office, you know, pets are welcome. And as long as you're taking care of them, um, the, the administration and um, management has has no problem with them being there. In fact, they, they find that these animals enrich the workplace. And it's something for a lot of employers, I think, to be thinking about when workers are making that transition back into the workplace, you know, what sort of um, comforts um, did the home offer that could transition somewhat nicely into, you know, into the city or into into the office, and what sort of you know preparations can they make um, to to better affect that change? You know, that's so true because I know the ASPCA also has um, the ability to have dogs come to work with their um, owners, and what they do is they all have crates in their office, and um, actually at the ASPCA here in New York, because I have a friend, um, Beverly Jones, who works there, she's an attorney, 
Um, and she said that we sometimes take some of the little kittens and cats that need to have socialization up into our offices and keep them for a week or two or three so that they're able to get what these shelter dogs got during COVID, which is the chance to live in a home, learn how to get manners. And even if I might not be able to keep it once everything opens up, which is so unfortunate for both the pet and the person. Um, but it's given this pet the ability to know how to live in a house. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Negotiate some of those different environments. Yeah, it's it's so true. So now while you're at Lewis and Clark, what do you do um, that has to do with, you know, why pets matter? Because I know that animal law is a huge piece, and I know you do a huge piece on international animal law. Yeah, international animal law is my primary focus. Um, It's one of the courses I teach in addition to animal legal philosophy. And, you know, in both of those courses, we consider questions like, you know, what is sort of the relationship, appropriate relationship between human and non-human animals? And, you know, when we bring some of these animals, some of these pets into our homes, what does that mean in terms of our ethical duty to them? So what sort of food do we have to supply? What sort of care do we have to supply? Um, Are there any sort of responsibilities that an animal can have to us? And, you know, getting to some of these larger questions, some of these ethical questions, what does it mean to sort of sterilize a cat or a dog if you are someone who subscribes to animal rights? Um, Is it it necessarily the same thing? Um, Are you asking the same questions as you would ask in a human rights context? And and um, so I really appreciate some of um, some of these conversations that we're able to engender, especially in my animal legal philosophy course, because it really does get at the heart of the question of, you know, what is the difference between how we think of pets versus how we think of companion animals, what sort of animals can or can't be, you know, put into some of those categories and, you know, what are the implications of those categories? Um, these are questions that, you know, the animal protection or animal rights movement is still sort of negotiating today. And um, I'm really excited to be able to work with, you know, the next generation of animal law attorneys who are hoping to, to give structure to and find answers um, for those, those burning questions. You know, it's so true. So I only really follow, um, I follow a lot of things, but one small part that I know absolutely may resonate with you, that's sort of not the right term, absolutely may, um, is the wild horses that are collected off of our ranges. Um, and most of them are um, um, gelded, which means that their you know, sex, sex ability is taken away. Uh, and there are two sides to that, that story because they said once those horses are released again as a band, that um, innate, this would resonate with you, I think, that innate um, ability to run a band and to keep everyone safe uh, no longer is as present. And I might be 100% wrong, but... Um, there's the side of the uh, wild horse uh, groups that say, okay, let's take them off and let's neuter them and, and let's try to um, have them adopted, which hasn't been working very well. Then there's a guy, Bill Simpson, up in the um, Pacific Rim, who actually has hoped for the um, wild horse fire brigade, because he said, if you move a lot of those BLM horses up to the top of the Pacific Rim, they can keep the... Um, they can keep the uh, fire um, fuel down uh, and also live a pretty normal life without being gelded or anything else. Uh, so what are your, what are your thoughts? Because I think that might be part of what's in the philosophy, um, the animal philosophy course. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these questions also come down to, you know, as you were pointing out, um, just land management issues, um, animal population control issues, and are, you know, are very, very complicated. And so when you're you know, one of the differences that that we sort of uh, begin the class with is, you know, are you are you looking at animal protection in terms of sort of the environmental context, and so are you concerned with sort of animals at the species level, or are you concerned with you know animals as individual beings and what their sort of rights and what our duties to them should be, and so, you know. Um, I, I hesitate to fall in one camp or the other. Usually, you know, the particular um, the particular issue at hand, the the actual um, you know facts on the grounds are are outcome determinative. But um, still, you know, just really important questions for us to sort of wrangle with um, when we think about you know animals as companions. You know, are we making it so that they cannot be companions with each other? We're we sort of adopting them. Um, into a particular construct where we don't have to necessarily ask some of these questions. And so just like with um, the wild horses issue, um, these are important questions to, to answer. And again, I think we'll be informed by sort of the facts on the ground. You know, it's it's so interesting you said that because it is about facilitating that multi-level conversation because we don't really um, know the all the answers we're getting more and more answers with how animals matriculate with each other how they stay in bands how they do have families how they communicate with each other um how they uh really set up a whole life even the fish in the sea because um we both know um that catherine does it's catherine right Hessler, Kathy Hessler, who does such beautiful work um with understanding uh the awareness of the animals in the water, which just came about, I think, in the last five years. So as you said, there's there's no one way to look at this, um, but to bring what I do into um, really part of this conversation is that it is about, and I love what you said, it's, it's about not taking one position, but listening to a number of positions. And in that class that you're giving, it gives you the opportunity um, to peacefully listen to somebody else's point of view. Oh, absolutely. And um, again, you know, these students, they read the assigned texts and they engage with and challenge one another and they challenge me too. And the hope is that, you know, we'll come to a position where there is no necessarily right answer. There are better answers and there are more informed answers. But um, that's what I, that's one of the things that I love so much about, you know, animal protection, and animal law is that it encourages you to be thinking about some of these, these questions in, in new contexts and really challenges you to, you know, question some of the assumptions that maybe brought you into the animal protection movement in the first place. You know, that is such a great way to look at it because you come in thinking one way. Uh, and if you can read the texts that are provided at various law schools who do have animal law um, study sections, uh, not as great as, as Lewis and Clark, but, you know, working on it, the ability to see things from various directions. I always say that when I have a divorce and people are fighting over their dog, um, there's, unfortunately, the pet doesn't hate your ex. So I know how you feel and I know how the other one feels. And one of the big mediation gurus, uh, William Urey said, there's your way, my way, and the third way or the third side. And so from what I'm hearing you say is, you know, you come to animal law, you do a lot of um, study and reading, you 
may come in with one point of view. You may keep that point of view, but at least you're open to hearing and appreciating and acknowledging another point of view. Oh, absolutely. And one of the sort of remarkable things about Lewis and Clark is that we attract so many international students um, to our program and they come to the United States, to Lewis and Clark in particular, because animal law, you know, started here as sort of a discrete area of studies, not necessarily offered in some of their home jurisdictions, but, you know, they bring, you know, insight into some of the complexities in their home jurisdictions when it comes to some of these animal issues. And so a lot of our U.S. students can appreciate, better appreciate that, you know, some of the, some of the times, or a lot of the times, um, these are sort of culturally informed and, um, environmentally informed and politically informed um, answers that you know might might be one answer here, but is a very different answer somewhere else. That is such an important piece to show people and to and to mention here on the podcast. And I'm so grateful you did because it is about how people are viewing it, even here in the United States by region. Um, you know, New York might be somewhere, and and Oregon might be somewhere where companion animals are huge. Uh, Texas and Missouri might be more um, farm animals or animals as, you know, products as opposed to um, companion animals as much as in the big cities versus the more rural areas. And then when you talk about international law, you and I are on an international law committee for the American Bar Association and the things we look at have so many different tendrils, like an octopus on how do we keep all of these um, ideals um, environmental questions, cultural questions, and political questions on the front burner so we don't alienate anyone and continue the conversation. Oh, absolutely. And as many perspectives as you can have, you know, that are informing, you know, the literature that you're coming out with, the stances you're taking, the more robust, I think, whatever sort of proposals um, you put forward will be, because it's all about getting stakeholders and it's all about, you know, um, affecting positive change for animals in whatever context it is, whether it's, you know, animals in entertainment, animals, you know, in agriculture, you know, pets, um, and so on. So in the scheme of things, how long have you been working in animal law and educating young people in animal law? And what are the changes you've seen over the past however many years, five years, 10 years? Because you're so young, I'm feeling really old right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that young, but, um, you know, my my interest in animal protection, you know, started from um, the time I was teaching um, at Indiana University, it was a course that I was um, teaching a section of called, you know, Ethical Animals, Animal Literature and the Human Condition. And it really got to the sort of the burning question of, you know, why do so many of these authors that we that we read and that we love, you know, use animals to tell stories about the human condition. So Franz Kafka and the Metamorphosis, um, Arch Beagleman and Mouse. And oftentimes, you know, they employ these, these animals, um, these, you know, uh, anthropomorphized animals as characters in order to sort of convey to the reader, you know, what it's like to be commodified and exploited, you know, these human populations, so discrimination and class exploitation and so on. And, you know, by the end of the, the semester, I was really engaging my students with, you know, some of the scientific studies and ethical studies like um, by Peter Singer and so on. You know, these animals are sentient. They have, you know, these very deep, complex emotional lives and they're suffering in a lot of the same ways that, you know, these, these anthropomorphized characters in our stories are suffering. And so don't we necessarily owe them some of the same sort of legal protections? And 
this was, you know, I think this was 2008 and basically to a person, everybody in my class said no. And um, that sort of moment sort of stuck with me. It's like, what is wrong with the system? And it is, I think, a systemic problem. And so that sort of, that sort of stuck with me for several years. And, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what sort of sparked this, but, you know, one, one night I was basically feeling a little bit of anxiety and angst and um, just basically started a, a web search for, you know, animal protection, the law. And I came upon Lewis and Clark and this was 2014, um, applied that year, came to Lewis and Clark, finished um, the three-year JD program and um, stayed on um, with um, the Center for Animal Law Studies and Lewis and Clark and um, have been sort of, have benefited from and I'm really excited to be able to sort of contribute back to um, this program that that sort of raised my animal awareness. And, you know, in terms of how much it's changed in just the past five years, I mean, you have sort of the, the PACT Act, which prevents, you know, animal cruelty um, at the federal level, which which passed, I think, just a couple of years ago, the same thing for the ban on cat and dog meat Um that, that sort of trade, whether it exists or not in the US exists internationally. And so the US passed a law to sort of signal to those, some of these other countries that this is a stance that the US is, is serious about. And there have been a number of, you know, state developments in the past five years, um, you know, just significant gains uh, with respect to, um, for example, Alaska requiring that judges take into consideration the best interests of the animals in divorce disputes, um, recognitions of animal sentience that applies in numerous contexts, whether it's companion animals or pets or um, or farmed animals or animals in entertainment and, and so on. I mean, the, the needle is moving in so many of these different um, fronts that um, if you, if you, sort of look at it, animal protection in a moment, you might be very disheartened, but if you look at it over the course of several years, and again, I've only been in the movement for five, six years, um, it's, been, it's been a pretty dramatic change for the better. You know, you're so, you're so right, because I have been in animal law probably since maybe 2005. Um, so that's why I'm older than dirt, but that's okay. Uh, and the interesting thing that I have noticed is the rise of organizations like Habari, the Human Animal Bond Research Institute, which um, creates research projects that actually show us the human animal bond and the scientific beings as they are, um, and have conferences at the University of Denver, who has a huge school on that and social work um, in the human-animal uh, bond area, along with Green Chimneys here in New York. They really do foster and um, enable the, the, the beautiful care of the animals, not to have the animals be um, abused by uh, children, but ra recognizing the ability of animals to sometimes reach children in a way people can't. Um, and that's just, you know, been incredible. They've done the studies that we all know. Our heart rate goes down when we pet a dog or a cat. Duh, we knew that. We didn't need a study, but thank God they did it. Um, and that people live longer. Uh, here in COVID, there's a number of animals that have had to go to shelters because their owners got sick and, and whatever. And it, that's so traumatic for the animals. Um, I'm sure you've you know read the work of Temple Grandin, who tries to provide the best um, situation under which animals can be cared for 
several areas. Maybe not perfect. We all, you know, have to consume less meat um, so that less animals are dying this way. I know that the United States has banned horse slaughter, but that's really only made it go over the border. But that's another podcast we'll talk about, uh, Rise, <laughs> not this one. Um, and then we have uh, Bernie Rowland, who I you might know. Um, he taught uh, animal ethics to the vet school at Colorado State University. And he actually wrote the foreword to my book. He is one of the treasures who probably back in the 60s or 70s, because he's older than me and that's almost impossible. Um, and he's really uh, created this movement on um, animal ethicism, animal ethics, um, bioethicism. And I think that's the correct word. I might be using it wrong, but everybody forgive me uh, because it really is important. And then finally, maybe while you were in Indiana, you heard about a guy named um, uh, Bob Mitchell at Eastern Kentucky. Kentucky University, who runs um, a Living with Animals conference every two years, where people do just what you taught at Indiana University. They take those books, they take those. I, the first time I went, I was like, sheep? Are you kidding? What is this? And I sat through the class on a book about sheep, a, a fictional book about sheep. I can't remember the name, I'm sorry. But it really was giving the audience and the reader the um, depth and complexity of the emotions of these living animals. It was, I had never read a book really with that view. I, you know, I'd read, you know, Black Stallion, every single one. Um, those probably are not that deep. However, you know, there was discussion of the horse's emotion during even those books that you read when you were five or 10 or 15, probably. I wrote them three or four times. So what you did at Indiana University so set you up for where you are now at Lewis and Clark because you were you were already aware of the, of the emotions and the lives of animals beyond what you saw um, just by observation, but rather by internalizing what they were internalizing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it is unlearning, too. You know, some of the lessons that we sort of uh, got imparted to us through osmosis. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was a little kid getting this this toy and basically had a little arrow on it. And you pull a string and it would basically the arrow would go around and it would, you know, land upon one particular animal and that particular animal sound would would be would be. Uh, would be spoken by by the little um, by this by this toy, and it was you know if it got landed on a cow it would go moo, um, and it makes you know makes you think about you know old McDonald had a farm and there's a particular animal and that animal basically repeats that same that same vocalization and you know there's something I I can't remember the exact term it's like reduplicative um, onomatopoeic and um, just has conditioned us to think that, you know, animals only make one sound, animals only feel one thing. But once you get to learn um, about some of their interiority, you get to learn about their their nature and their habits and things like that. You get to see them as the, you know, very beautiful, very complex, very, you know, insightful creatures that they are. And even if they're herd animals, no two animals are the same, I swear. I mean, I have had several Irish setters in my life and people say, oh my God, they're, they're just so alike. And I said, no, <laughs> not even close. And I, I don't know if you've had more than one cat, but I know that I now understand the differences in cats um, because of my grandkitty Jane. And it really is important for everyone to take a step back. I think it's, a, it's um, life-changing that people are 
more aware of the um, sensitivities of animals right now, that they aren't just all dogs, all cats, all horses, all birds, but there are different um, nuances to each animal that people are willing to learn about and care for. And even if your life um, work is cattle ranching or milk farming, you know, milking, knowing how to, so for me, knowing how to do whatever that is in a way that doesn't raise the animal's cortisol level, which of course makes, makes you have to be aware of the stress they're living under. If we could just get people to do that, uh, that would be, I think, a huge shift in the right direction for the animals. And then, you know, it, because it, it I, I'm not an animal, um, aficionado. I know a little bit, but I know that um, cortisol in animals that are being um, slaughtered for food, uh, not good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, some of the different personalities of these animals and even in systems, some factory farming systems that are designed to basically make them all the same, you know, Farmers have have noted like this cow is very different from this cow, and there's something very endearing about this cow and this cow and this cow that makes them unique. And it's actually led to a lot of farmers giving up um, the the production that they've that's been in their generations for you know um, their family for generations. And so you know absolutely, it's just another way of sort of um, accentuating your your point. Yeah. So um, educate. Education, communication, um, different studies, uh, and the openness to learn uh, and not criticize, you know, not be defensive, not think, oh, well, I'm going to tell Raj what I think of how he treats his cattle or his horses. Instead of doing that, understanding that there are different points of view. Uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of understanding there's a a different point of view, appreciate and acknowledge it doesn't mean agree. The only thing that um, appreciate has in common with agree is A-R-E. And if we um, do talk about it, we are going to find a way to make it better for us and the animals. And maybe not in that order, because I'd really prefer to have the animals have it a little better than me. Um, But I'm so grateful you're here. This is a fountain of information that I know all of my listeners are going to want to hear some more about. So we will, hopefully, would you be willing, I hope, Raj, to come back and and have another conversation with us because I don't think people take the time to understand how much our mindset has changed since even just the 50s and 60s in the care. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I couldn't, you know, underscore this enough. I mean, animals really have, our cats and dogs have moved from the backyard in the doghouse to the house, to our couches and to our beds. And, you know, they're part of the family now. Most Americans agree with that statement. And it's good to see the laws being updated to reflect um, that, that, uh, that emotional bond that we have with them. That dynamic shift. And if people haven't dynamically shifted that way, we can um, respect where they come from and possibly move them, move their needle a little bit. Um, so that, as you said, the, the farmers that were doing, you know, massive milk cows or massive um, food chain supplies might 
think of a better way because uh, you know the the unfortunate piece is we're all not going to stop eating steak tomorrow. Uh, however, if we can stop eating steak on Mondays and Fridays or Mondays and Wednesdays, that would make a huge difference and and possibly create more of an awareness of creating. Um, you know, the the food chain that is more supportive of the um, sensitivities of an animal, because I don't think we're necessarily even close to that yet. But hopefully with Temple Grandins and with, you know, your students um, and me, uh, we can have people understand that there's a there's a better way. And, and maybe in our lifetime, uh, we'll be um, not slaughtering animals, animals anymore. But if we are doing it in a way that actually takes into consideration a lot of their um, uh, sensitivities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's not to, you know, discount that there's going to be, and there already are, you know, a number of technological advancements, you know, um, uh, sort of cell bit, cellular-based meats and things like that. So you can really, you know, have uh, your burger, your steak, and sort of take animals out of the equation whatsoever. And so, in doing that sort of honor and respect um, their their interests and um, keep them out of basically these systems of production. Absolutely, because those really are not in any way um, respectful and responsive to the needs of the animal. And it is sort of um, interesting that a, a big food chain, I think it's Burger King, has the Incredible Burger, which has Possible no meat burger. in it. Impossible burger. Sorry. Well, it's incredible too. It's incredible and impossible. (laughs) Yes. yes. Um, And so, you know, we're, we're starting and we can only hope that this happens again. So for me, the three things I'm taking away and I hope my, you know, podcast listeners are taking away is to understand the deep and complex emotional attitudes of animals, how they affect us because they do, especially in COVID because they've affected us. They've kept us mostly sane during COVID um, and how we can all work together to listen to each other uh, without as much um, strife so that we can get people to move incrementally closer to really being respectful of an animal's um, emotions and, and their well-being. Absolutely. Well, Raj, thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening. I am so glad you're here. You're listening to Why Do Pets Matter, hosted by me, Deborah Hamilton. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to any of your podcast um, platforms to listen to Why Do Pets Matter. And you can find me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com. See you on the next episode. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover? Write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.